For those of you who are visiting, we're going through the uh, Gospel of John, so we're going to continue that uh, series this morning, and we're going to be looking at the the back part of John chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, please uh, help yourself up front here, and we've got some journals here as well with the Gospel of John. Um, Take one of those, it'd be helpful as you make notes. Let's just uh, pray together uh, before we start. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we uh, do thank you. Thank you for once again the opportunity to come together and worship you. Father, as we open your word, your, your very precious word this morning, uh, grant us ears to listen, we pray. We pray that you will remove the distractions of what has gone on through the week. Enable us to look at your very words from your word. We thank you that you have communicated to us in such a way. We thank you that your spirit dwells within those who believe you and you use your very word to illuminate our hearts, to encourage us, to exhort us, to rebuke us, to shape us into being more like Christ. So Father, it's with eager anticipation this morning as we open your word together. We ask for you to do a work in our hearts to grow us into being more like Christ. That is our desire in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Where does uh, your security come from? Or what does being secure mean to you? See, being secure can mean many different things to many different people. From the moment we're born, we, we crave security. The warmth and care given to us by our, our mothers uh, shows us that security is important, especially to a completely helpless baby. As we grow, we we tend to find security in other things. Maybe your security is in your intellect and how well you are educated. Or maybe for the rest of us, your security is in your athletic ability. How well you can pass or throw a ball or or whatever. Just a, a small insight on that, that security will go at some point in time as you get older. Maybe security for you is in your career. Maybe it's in your financial well-being. Maybe that's the thing that gives you security. Maybe it's in your superannuation balance. Maybe you saved hard all, all those years and you have a healthy lifestyle financially. Perhaps um, you find security in your family the relationships you have with your kids and your uncles and aunts and nieces and nephews and and cousins and mothers and fathers. Maybe security could be in that. Maybe it's in relationships, just straight-out relationships. How many Facebook likes you get every time you post a picture of your breakfast or your lunch or whatever it might be. Maybe you find um, your security in your citizen rights, perhaps. 
being part of the lucky country. Australians, maybe your security is in the fact that you're Australian. Advance Australia, fair. Or maybe you're a Kiwi. You have double security. Perhaps um, we all seek security, don't we? Perhaps we seek security from our police force. Our police keep us safe. Uh, We seek security from the fireys, from the ambos, from the nurses, from the doctors, and maybe sometimes even from our public servants. As human beings, we really like to feel secure. However, I reckon security can be very misleading. It can be a very misleading concept. Because when we place our security in such things as I've mentioned, those things are really only temporal. They're only here for the here and now. Think about the fact that if you place your security in your health, how quickly that can be taken away. All those things I've mentioned, uh, education, career, financial well-being, superannuation, family, relationships, citizen rights, all things that are temporary and can be removed very quickly. And the other misleading thing about security is when we have an unhealthy view about what our security is in, it can very quickly lead to self-sufficiency. And self-sufficiency can be a a false notion of what security is, so that's another danger. Because when self-sufficiency rules our lives, there's actually no place left for God. No place left for the spiritual. It's really fascinating because as we're going through the book of John, we, we start to uncover that one of the, the major hallmarks of Jesus' teaching, and we're particularly going to look at this this morning in John chapter 10, is our eternal security. See, eternal security is not something that is temporal. It's not something that can be removed. Eternal security is known as the blessings of eternal life. Now, everyone has eternal life. It's just a destination that's up for grabs. We're all created in the image of God, every human being, and the soul is eternal. And this morning, as we open up this text... We will see that our eternal security is based on one thing and one thing alone. That's the work and person of Christ. And this is a wonderfully encouraging thing. So turn with me to to John chapter 10. We'll pick up the dialogue in verse 22. Remember last week, uh, Jesus started teaching the fact that he is the good shepherd and that he is the door that, that only through him is eternal life granted. 
And he is the good shepherd who will lay down his life for his sheep. And he continues this dialogue. So let's read together. We'll read the first uh, eight verses. Verse 22. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. My Father, I've said that, who's given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So we've got this scene. Jesus has moved on from the place where he was giving the Good Shepherd Shepherd Dialogue, which was potentially at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. And now we come to a, a different feast and a different time. We see it here at the time of the the Feast of Dedication. This is the the time that Jesus makes these claims in this dialogue with the Jews. So what is the Feast of Dedication? I'm glad you asked. Because we're in the middle of the the festival cycle, right? We started the festival cycle in John chapter 5, and it goes through to the end of John chapter 12. It's known as the the festival cycle, where Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, and he he celebrates certain feasts. Passover, tabernacles and booze, which is the same feast, and now the Feast of Dedication. This Feast of Dedication happened around the 25th of December, every year. So around Christmas time in our terms, but... It wasn't there to celebrate Christmas. It was a, a feast of dedication. And uh, it, was, um, it was unlike the previous Feast of Tabernacles in that this was celebrated in the home. You didn't have to go to the temple to celebrate it. It was celebrated in the home. And it was a feast that celebrated the rejection of false rulers. That's what this feast was all about, and, and it was uh, initiated. It's not a biblical feast. You can't go back to Leviticus and say, okay, here are the prescription for this feast. This was a historical feast which the Jews celebrated. And it was based on a point in history when uh, a fellow by the name of Judas Maccabees, or Maccabeus, went and regained the temple happened in 164 BC. 164 years before Christ was born, this particular event happened. It's known as the the Maccabean Revolt. So what was so significant about this? Well, this feast um, was a rejection of the false rulers as epitomized by a fellow by the name of 
Antiochus IV Epiphanes. You see, what this guy did is he came in, he ruled over Jerusalem, and he desecrated the temple by slaughtering a pig on the altar. Can you imagine how abhorrent that is to a Jew? The holy of holies, desecrated by the slaughter of a pig, an unclean animal. You see, Antiochus had ordered the the Hellenization of Jerusalem. He wanted to move it from being Jewish to being Hellenized. He destroyed the walls around the city, and he refortified the city during it, uh, and turning the city into a pagan stronghold. He tried to completely exterminate Jewish religion. He forbid the Jews from actually celebrating Sabbath and all the feasts. He ordered the destruction of the Torah, the Old Testament scriptures, or the first five books of the Old Testament. He ordered the destruction of that. And he said, you can no longer practice the rite of circumcision. So he was a despot, right? There's a guy coming in here trying to, trying to control what was going on in Jerusalem in AD 160-ish. And to typify his control, he made the temple a place of worship for Zeus. And he commemorated this by slaughtering this pig on the altar. And then Judas Maccabeus said, enough is enough. He, he got himself a band of men together and they came and they overcame Antiochus. And therefore, on the 25th day of December, 146 BC, the temple was rededicated. It was rededicated and daily sacrifices were restored and hence the Feast of Dedication. So this is the ceremony which Jesus is uh, talking at. The ceremony is going on, this feast is going on. And one of the characteristics of the feast was uh, the lighting and illuminating of the temple as well as the lighting and illuminating of private homes. It became a feast to commemorate a divine victory. So they looked at the feast and they remembered what Judas Maccabeus had done. And for them it was also pointed forward to a future victory. So whenever the Jews celebrated this thing, they, were, they had some sort of messianic hope. They had some sort of hope about what was going to happen in the future, that someone would come in and uh, reestablish the throne in the temple, reestablish the Davidic throne. And they would enjoy a time of independence. So that's the feast that's going on. What else is going on here as we see it was winter. So December in Israel is winter. December in Australia is summer. So it's the middle of winter and we see Jesus walking in the temple. Now I've got a couple of shots here just to to show you uh, Jerusalem at the time of Christ. And I think this is kind of, this is a model that actually sits in Israel. They built this 50 to 1 model of what Jerusalem would look like in the time of Christ. So can you see where the temple is? Far right-hand side. See the Temple Mount? 
I haven't got a pointer, so otherwise I'd point to it, but far right hand side you see the temple. There's a, a closer look at the temple. So you can see it actually dominates the landscape of, of ancient Jerusalem. And the text tells us that Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So what's the colonnade of Solomon? As you look across the temple there, see those colonnades on the, on the, on the back of the temple? It's a sheltered area. It was winter, it was cold, so Jesus is walking in that type of area um, when this confrontation occurs. So I thought that would just be helpful to give you some idea of what we're talking about here. It was a part of the temple court, this colonnade, and it was a sheltered place. And this becomes a really important part of uh, the Christian message because if you read in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 5, this is where the first believers would regularly proclaim who Jesus was regularly proclaim him in these colonnades of Solomon you can just imagine it crying out to all the Jews meeting in the, in the courts and proclaiming Christ as Messiah so we, we come to our text in verse 24 and the Jews gathered around him and said to him how long will you keep us in suspense they're asking him a question if you are the Christ tell us plainly now, it's a really interesting term, this gathering around Jesus. It's not just sort of a, a friendly gathering around. If you, you look at the, the word more deeply, it, it means to encircle, to surround, very much with a hostile intent. They're coming around him saying, tell us, tell us. It's, it's much like a, a wild animal circling its prey. That's what the Jews are doing here. How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. They want to know if he is the long-awaited Messiah. They wanted to know perhaps he is the fulfillment of the, the, this feast of dedication. Perhaps he is the one who's going to sit himself politically on the throne at this time and rule the earth. That's in their forefront of their mind. They were seeking a Messiah like Judas Maccabeus. One who would rule and reign from the throne of David. One who would bring peace. And this is the question they leave him with. Are you this person, Jesus? Are you this person? And they want to know it in an explicitly plain language. So what does Jesus do? He answers them in unexplicitly plain language. He answers them. Firstly, he states, you can read it in verse 25, I told you and you do not believe. So he says, why are you continuing to ask me these things? I have told you who I am. Not only have I told you, but the very things I do, the works that I do, they bear witness about who I am. And I'm doing these works in the Father's name. In God's name, these are the works I do and I bear witness about, they bear witness to who I am. So what are those works? If you've been following with us since January, you'll know what these works are. These are the very 
signs that Jesus has done. The statements that he has made. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I've healed the sick. I've given sight to the blind. And I've forgiven sin. Jesus is implying here, you haven't believed my works. You haven't believed the things, these signs are pointing to the fact that I am Messiah. See, these signs all point to the fact, these works all point to the fact that he is the divine son of God. And the second reason he gives here, firstly, you have not believed my works. And then verse 26, read this slowly. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. He's going back to the, the shepherd motif and, which was spoken a couple of months earlier. He says, you don't believe because you don't hear my call. You don't believe because you are deaf to the reality of my call. They do not hear the Messiah's voice calling and drawing them. He'd already explained this further back in John chapter 6. Move back to John 6 and, and put a little bit of a circle around these verses. John 6.35 says this, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All that the Father gives me, he will, will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 60, chapter 6. The disciples heard these things. It was a hard saying. And some of these disciples grumbled and, and, they, and Jesus says, um, do you take offense at this? And he reminds them that the words he speaks give life. In verse 65, and he said, truly, this is why I told you, that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And he's saying the same thing here. You are not my sheep because you do not hear my call. And then he responds in the most remarkable way. And he focuses on two major things. Two major things for sheep. Firstly, that his sheep, the ones that do hear his call, the ones that do follow him, are eternally secure. And secondly, that they are secure because he and the Father are one. So he brings in a multiple witness. Not only am I saying this, but the Father also witnesses to the fact that you are secure. No one can snatch you out of my hand, and no one snatches you out of the Father's hand. 
This is such bedrock, beautiful Christian truth. This is the heart of security. So let's just break this down a little bit from verse 27 to verse 30. So what is it that makes our lives eternally secure? Firstly, you hear Christ's voice. You hear and you respond. You hear and it's an ongoing activity. You are constantly looking to and are directed by the shepherd. Secondly, you are known. Look at the three verbs in verse 27. Hear, know, and follow. Critical words. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. Christ knows you if you have heard his voice. Ephesians 1 tells us that actually he knows you from eternity past from before the foundation of the world. A tremendous thing to consider from God's perspective. They are known by the shepherd. And they follow the shepherd. It's another active response by the sheep. You hear and you follow and you're deeply known by the shepherd. And what does the shepherd do? He grants eternal life. I will give eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. What is the basis of eternal life and security according to these verses? The basis of eternal life and security is the fact that you are known by the Son and it's through his and his work because what, what are we previously told? He will lay down his life for the sheep. See, eternal life is a gift. And it's given only by one. It's given by the great shepherd, Christ himself. It is a present reality. If you have put your faith and trust and belief in Christ, it is a present reality. You have eternal life. It is also a future reality because we will be with him one day. It's a present and future reality. And then he adds, if you have this eternal life, you will never perish. You will always be in me. You will always be with the shepherd. You will always be following. You will always be hearing my voice. And then he says, not only that, this is confirmed. This is confirmed between myself and the Father. Because my father, verse 29, has, who has given them to me, which we read back in chapter 6, that was all about the father giving sheep to the, to, to the son, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. You see, this word snatch is really kind of interesting. This word snatch is actually in the future tense. 
So no one in the future, once you've made your decision for Christ, no one in the future can snatch you, can rip you, can take you out of his hand. No one can gain control of you. And this is affirmed between the testimony of the Father and the Son. Do you get that fact and that truth? That you are eternally secure. Your salvation is a gift of God's grace to you. He is the one that makes you alive. He is the one that secures you for all eternity. Ephesians actually tells us, Ephesians chapter 1, if you just flick over to there. Bring in the Holy Spirit's role in this. Ephesians 1, verse 13. In Him, that's in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were what? Were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. John tells us that no one can break the seal, no one can snatch that truth and reality from your life. You are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Isn't that incredible? If you're a follower of Christ, you're secure in him. No one can snatch you away. I know at times you feel as though you've been snatched away. I know at times that anxiety and, and doubts and, and all those things sweep over us. And those things in many cases are, are, are traps of the devil. They move us away from the reality that we are in Christ so secure that nothing can snatch us away. It's incredible. Leah Morris says this about this particular passage. Our continuance in eternal life depends not on our feeble hold on Christ, but on his firm grip on us. Isn't that tremendous? Oh, okay, I'll get back to that. I must have knocked it. Our continuance in eternal life depends not on our feeble hold on Christ, but on his firm grip on us. When we believe that, we're living a life of faith. When we believe that, we understand that Christ is our King and our Lord and our Master. He is our great shepherd who gently talks to us, who knows us more intimately than anyone else. And he secures us for all eternity. Okay, so, Jesus has stated this fact. Did the Jews like this? Well, they said, yes, thank you for answering our question. Thank you for clarifying us the fact that you might be the Messiah. Was that their response? Let's read verse 31. 
the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which one of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, it is not written in your law, I said you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him. But he escaped from their hands. So they pick up stones to stone him. And the rationale for stoning him is probably a reasonable rationale because they were saying, well, we don't think you are the son of God. You're making yourself out to be God, so our law says we should stone you. That's their rationale. And Jesus questions them. He says, okay, which particular thing that I've done are you going to stone me for? What particular law have I broken? What particular issue is it that uh, you want to stone me for? He said, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which one are you stoning me? And good works or great works, as the NIV says here, could be translated in this way. They are beautiful. They are wise. they They are of moral quality contributing to salvation so the works I've shown you contribute to salvation because these works point to who I am and I'm the only one that can provide eternal life and the Jews once again clarify their issue no it's the blasphemy you're making yourself out to be God and you're just a man and then Jesus rejects this charge of blasphemy and challenges them to provide a rationale for their charges he does this by quoting an Old Testament scripture. He does this by quoting from Psalm 82, verse 6. If you look at it in verse 34 of John 10, you will see it. Is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? He pulls that quote out of Psalm 82. So the question is, what is the logic of Jesus' argument here? We, we see the end goal of the argument. He wants to still maintain the fact that he and the Father are one and that he is the only way of salvation. We get that at the end of the argument. But then he throws in this, this psalm to try and make his point. And this is really difficult to follow. And I've got to tell you, I've been wrestling with this for a week or so, and I'm probably a little closer to where I was when I started the week out, but it's still a really difficult thing to try and work out. So I want to give you some suggestions to help you out here. And by no means I hold these suggestions quite loosely. <laughs> um, they're my best attempt here. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. There are more uh, intelligent scholars out there who make sense of this try to make sense of this so let's look at Psalm 82 because whenever 
a New Testament, Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament, it's not quoted in isolation. The folks listening to it would have understood the whole of Psalm 82. It's only eight verses, so let's read it together. Psalm 82, if you've got your Bibles. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So what's the main point of the psalm? That's the first question you've got to ask. What is the main point of the psalm? What's the theme of the psalm? The psalmist here, I think, pictures God standing in the midst of a council where he accuses the gods, little g, of failing to promote justice on earth. God pronounces sentences upon them, announcing that they will die like men. Having witnessed the scene, the psalmist then asks God to establish his just rule over the earth. That seems to be a reasonable plain reading of the psalm. If you're a rabbi, you would have a different view. See, in, if you're a rabbi, you would think that this psalm was an attack on unjust judges who, though they have been given the title gods, little g, because of their quasi-divine function of exercising judgment, are just as mortal as other men. Whenever we go and look at rabbinical literature, we've got to be very careful about their method of interpretation. Rabbis will go down two strands of interpretation, one called Midrash and one called Pesha. Both these tend to allegorize heavily. They move away from the common intent of the scripture. That's just an aside. But the issue with this psalm, it's probably not trying to identify the theme, it's trying to identify those whom God is addressing in the psalm. Who is God addressing in the psalm? You tell me. And while you have a look at that, I'll get my slide up again because this will be helpful. See, if you look at four translations, God is addressing... According to these four translations, either the divine council, his own congregation, the great assembly, or the assembly of El. They are the four people he's addressing, right? So which one's right? Well, I'll give you some options. We'll have a go here. Stay with me. And as I said before, I just hold these things loosely. I'm just trying to give you an idea of why did Jesus use this in John 10 to make his point? We can speculate, but we must be very careful not to make our speculations truth propositions. Let's make that out there. So here we've got these, these four options in our English Bibles of the English text. It is the phrase... 
Adet El, that's the Hebrew phrase up in the top there. That's the phrase that we're talking, which has been translated divine council, his own congregation, the great assembly or assemblies of El. See, some understand El. This is the key thing. What is El? Some understand El to refer to God himself. In this case, he's pictured as presiding over his own heavenly assembly. So the ESV and the NASB reflect that. ESV says divine assembly, divine council, his own congregation. Others take El as a superlative here. God stands in the great assembly. So NIV, for instance, takes it as a superlative. The one of interest to me is the NET translation because it seems to be closest to the Hebrew. God stands in the assembly of El. So El is clearly that. Adet El. You can see it up there. So what does that mean? See, El in the, in the Old Testament can mean a general name for God or it can be a specific name for a Canaanite God, the Canaanite God El. The Canaanite God El presided over Canaanite divine assemblies. We probably get a sense of that in Isaiah 14, verse 13. Probably. And then there's this some myth from the Canaanites, evidently, that the phrase refers to an assembly of the God where they congregate at some king's house where Baal asked El to bless this house. Evidently, that's what it's there for. So the NET takes this position, that the psalm should be understood as a bold polemic against Canaanite religion. Yahweh, Israel's God, invades El's assembly, denounces its gods as failing to uphold justice, announces their coming demise. So there are your options. So why does Jesus use it here in the middle of John chapter 10? Any ideas? I'd be helped here if you have some ideas. Why does he use it here in the middle of 10? What's he trying to communicate as a response to the Jews? Because the Jews were confused about this psalm as well. They didn't have clarity about what the psalm meant. So what is Jesus, uh, Jesus saying? I think this is what he's saying. He's responding in a way which he has before. He's using an argument from lesser to greater. He's saying, okay, maybe the use of the word gods here could be aligned to Old Testament judges, which is the predominant rabbinical view. But whoever it refers to, the fact is that Jesus is greater than all those. Jesus is greater than any created being. He's greater than that. So therefore, there is no issue in him taking on the name, the Son of God. He is the Word incarnate, whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world. We see that in verse 36. In light of the prologue which we've read, this is the most natural way of understanding it. If it's permissible to call created beings gods, whatever that assembly might be, whether it's a divine council, his own congregation, a great assembly, or the assembly of El, the Canaanite thing, 
whether it's permissible to call all those created beings God, little g, because they were the vehicles of the word of God, how much more permissible is it to use the word God of him who is the eternal word? See, the main point here is that the fact that Jesus, the God-sent one, and the scripture align. And because he is the new, unique son, these scriptures can align to the fact that he is the unique son of God. So therefore, you do not have a charge of blasphemy. So that's my best take of a very difficult passage. But what is the result of this? I think that's the important thing. The result is they don't believe. Notice that? Jesus answers them in a rational way. And what's the result? Jesus says, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He doesn't change his position. I am the divine Son. We are one. I am God. And they seek to arrest him. They seek to arrest him. They've been trying to do this for weeks and years. <laughs> but Jesus' time had not yet come. He was on the divine plan as determined by God, as we read in Acts 2, 22 and 24. He was not on the plan of the angry mob. He wasn't aligning himself to the disbelievers of his day, but he was on God's plan. Let's read Acts 2. I think this is a tremendous way of thinking through this whole issue of eternal security and what our salvation has wrought. So Acts 2, this is Peter, the day of Pentecost. Read these carefully, Acts 2, 22. He charges the Israelites in the same colonnade, in the same place. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. Does that not sound like John? What we've been reading and understanding. That God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless man. God delivered him up according to his plan. The angry mob were part of the process because they murdered the Son of God. Divine plan, human responsibility, in unison. And this is so critical to understand. That Jesus was going to the cross based on the plan of God that our security in him is based on the fact that he has won the victory at the cross, based on God's plan. Our security is based on the combined will and plan of the Father and the Son and is sealed by the Spirit, as we read in Ephesians chapter 1. That's what our security is in. Our security is in the fact that Christ has ransomed us, has justified us, has appeased God's wrath against us, has forgiven us, has reconciled us, all aspects of this wonderful thing we call the atonement. And what is the result? You and I have eternal security. He 
He is a wonderful God we serve. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. Live in light of that this week. No matter what you're facing, think about that afresh each day as you wake in the morning. Nothing separates me from the love of Christ. I am secure in him. And if you're not secure in him, the challenge is, listen to his voice and follow him. Believe that he has died for your sin. Believe that he has laid down his life. Because that's the only way of salvation. He is our all and all. He provides our salvation. He provides our eternal security. Don't lose. Don't be shaken by that truth because it's everywhere in God's word. Now I invite the music team to...